Welcome to the Band Voices podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan. Band Voices is the podcast from the Band Books Museum, a museum in Tallinn, Estonia, which protects and exhibits banned, burned and censored books from around the world. This is episode 7 of the Band Voices podcast. However, it's also episode 1 of our second series. This series is a four-parter and is focused on China and specifically ethnic minority groups in China and the different ways in which they are being censored and their voices are being oppressed. In this episode, I interview Inkbat Tajik. Inkbat runs the Southern Mongolian Human Rights Information Centre which documents the ongoing persecution and censorship of the Southern Mongolian ethnic minority group in China. I think most people in the West know already something about the Tibetans, about the Hong Kongers and the even the Uyghurs and what they're going through, but not so many people know about the Mongolians who are living in China and their kind of unique situation and challenges. So that's why it was really good to have this conversation and I hope that you learn from it as much as I did. So, Inkapad, it's nice to uh, finally talk to you. I'm really happy to have you on this podcast to talk about uh, Inner Mongolia, Southern Mongolia. Uh, so welcome to the Band Voices podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, so I think uh, maybe we can start uh, by you telling me a bit about uh, yourself and uh, your background and then sure. uh, lead that into like your, your organization. So uh, my name is Inkbat Tajik. Um, I'm a Mongolian uh, born and raised in uh, Southern Mongolia or uh, widely known as uh, Inner Mongolia. But uh, Mongolians uh, around the world prefer the English term Southern Mongolia um, instead of Inner Mongolia. Because um, in our language, actually, um, we call our, ourselves Uvur Mongol, uh, which means just uh, Southern Mongolia. Um, it's traditional term uh, referring to the Mongolia, uh, the part of Mongolia south to the Gobi Desert. And then we call uh, the independent country of Mongolia not as Northern Mongolia or in, in Mongolian it's called Ar Mongol. So it's, it's just uh, traditionally, these are just uh, geographical terminologies. But uh, over time, the Chinese authorities, Chinese uh, people uh, in general, they took advantage of this, this uh, two, two uh, you know, ge- geographical terminology. And then they just uh, intentionally distorted the meaning and then they uh, translated it, in, it into... Uh, Chinese, of course, uh, you know, uh, Southern Mongolia is translated as Neimango, and which means in, in Chinese is inner, inner Mongolia. Unfortunately, um, the Western world, especially in English speakers, they got this, uh, the, you know, terminology, the, the concept from, from uh, directly from uh, the Chinese, and then they uh, in English, they normally they call Southern Mongolia as as uh, Inner Mongolia, and an independent country of Mongolia 
uh, which is uh, you know democratic and independent country for for uh, m- more than like 100 years uh, but well uh, dem- democracy uh, started from 1990s but uh, you know as an independent country it exists for more than one century but the Chinese government when Chinese people even those uh, Chinese um, Democracy activists abroad call independent country of Mongolia always, you know, as uh, outer Mongolia or in, in Chinese, why Mongol, which we really, I mean, feel kind of like uh, strange. I mean, you know, you are advocating for democracy and now you're just uh, just still using the very um, uh, kind of to the Mongolians is kind of derogatory uh, terminology. And so we prefer um, Southern Mongolia instead of Inner Mongolia. That's why my organization is also called Southern Mongolian uh, Human Rights Information Center. And uh, so, yeah, I was born there. I was uh, raised there. And then I came to the United States in 1998. Uh, came to this country as as a refugee, political refugee or or asylum seeker, and I I got asylum status uh, in 1999, and uh, later on I became uh, a U.S. citizen. And uh, as soon as I, I arrived in uh, the United States, I started my uh, organization, uh, Southern Mongolian Human Rights Information Center, uh, along with uh, uh, my fellow Southern Mongolians. The, the goal of this organization is to first to raise the awareness of the Southern Mongolian issue. Um, you know what's happening in uh, Xinjiang or East Turkestan um, and Tibet. So the Southern Mongolia is actually uh, was the first so-called uh, ethnic minority autonomous region in, in China. Well, originally it was called not ethnic minority autonomous region. It was called nationality minority autonomous region. Over time, I think it's 1980s, uh, Chinese government, well, intentionally um, started using ethnic minority autonomous region as part of their their strategy to depoliticizing this terminology. So in English, we're talking about in English. So in, in Chinese, it's still called Neimengu Zhijishu, which means like Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, which is like they even have uh, some law legislation called um, Ethnic Minority uh, Autonomy, Autonomous Law, or originally it was uh, translated as uh, nationality minority autonomous law. Now they, again, they're using ethnic minority. So I was, yes, uh, grew up in there. I came to the United States. So our, our uh, yeah, again, my organization's focus is to, one is to um, raising awareness or reporting on the uh, human rights violation and socioeconomic status of Southern Mongolia in, in uh, mainly in, in English. Uh, and then we uh, distribute our newsletters around the world uh, to like um, uh, news organizations, human rights organizations, as well as some uh, United Nations and the government bodies uh, in the uh, Western world. So that's part of our, uh, you know, uh, goal to raising awareness. And then second goal is to 
educate the Mongolians in southern Mongolia about their rights and then about the way for defending their their rights, which is very difficult because you know, as you know, China is a, a country where. Uh, freedom of speech and freedom of uh, press is uh, almost uh, non-existent. So uh, it's very difficult for us to educate people, but we we translated some books, translated some, uh, including some United Nations charter, United Nations uh, documents uh, on human rights, indigenous rights, and we tried to distribute them in, in Southern Mongolia, which is a very difficult task, but we, we, we did some, we smuggled some translated work into Southern Mongolia. And, and also, the, you know, uh, through the internet, we, we distribute some information. These, this is our second focus, um, you know, no, just uh, inform the Southern Mongolians of the people uh, around the uh, how people around the world is de- defending their rights and uh, you know try to in in a hope that uh, uh, educate them uh, about the the way for defending their uh, rights in a more effective way that's that's what we are doing you know i can confirm this from personal experience that you know the um well there's so much to talk. There's so much to pick up art here. There's so many questions I have for you, <laughs> but I will say that you're completely right about the inner Mongolia versus Southern Mongolia point yes. mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, I lived there for a year and the term Southern Mongolia was never used. I, do, I didn't know it was a term that could be used until I left that region. It was mm-hmm. always referred to as in English as inner Mongolia exactly. and mm-hmm. in Chinese as Neymongo. And yes. this is just how it is. And if you say to people Southern Mongolia, I think mm-hmm. for the for most people, they would assume that you're referring to part of the country Mongolia. Exactly. The southern part of the country Mongolia. Yes, I, I totally agree with you because, you know, um, yeah, it's a, a, a good to hear that you have experience living in in. Uh, Southern Mongolia, also known as Inner Mongolia. A lot of people uh, just refer to still using the, the well, the terminology, the Inner Mongolia. So the, the another reason that we, why we don't like this terminology is it's a very Sinocentric, China-centered terminology, right? When, when this is like, even from the ge- geographical perspective, when you say Inner, Inner of home, and then you know outer outer of home of course the center is china so the <laughs> that's to us it's it's nonsense i mean uh, in in uh, that's why it didn't exist in in our language in this way and then well this is not just like after long term uh, like uh, hundreds probably at least more than 100 years this terminology has been like in, in english and uh, used as Inner Mongolia, that's that's interesting that uh, so even some Mongolians from Southern Mongolia, Mongolians from independent country of Mongolia and in the, the Western world, they also uh, picked up this <laughs> Inner Mongolia. That I said, I, I talked to, told them, hey, come on, guys, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but how do the how do the people in Mongolia, the independent, how, do, how, how is it best to refer to that country, Mongolia? Because it's not a republic, right? It's, it's yes, just uh, Mo- Mongolia is just the, exactly. The yes, called. you're right. They were originally when um, they uh, got their independence and soon after uh, they got the independent, well, I mean, I, I would say 
obtained uh, well i would say like restore their their independence because mongolia was an independent country you know the the, the mongolian history so mongolia was never been part of china and so uh, in 1911 mongolia restored their independence from the manchu Qing empire it, it has nothing to do with the chinese and then there's no chinese uh, nation existed at that time. It's, it's you know, it's a Manchu empire and Chinese were just, you know, uh, subjugated and then, you know, just, well, I mean, unfortunately they were the second class citizen of this empire. And then in, in, in reality, uh, if you look back the history, look, look back at the history, the Qing Manchu empire was actually the co-rule of Mongolians and the Manchu. And then so in 1911, Mongolia got a restart their independence. And then they, 1924, they turned to what is called uh, People's Republic of Mongolia. Um, so, and then later on 1990s, they, when they, uh, when Mongolia turned to in, independent, uh, I mean, a democratic country, they, they just use Mongolia. Now there's no Republic or People's Republic uh, is used. It's just Mongolia. That, that's the, the official name of independent country of Mongolia, which in our language, actually, the, you know, traditionally, we even uh, among the, the uh, general population of Southern Mongolia, we call uh, Northern Mongolia or Armangul. That's, that's what we use now. But how do the people of northern Mongolia or Mongolia, how do, how, how, what is their perspective on this, on the question of southern Mongolia and inner Mongolia? Do they, do they feel very strongly passionate about it? Do they feel very much like it's a country divided in a kind of a South Korea, North Korea, the opposite way around kind of situation? Or do they feel like, um, you know, we are the Mongolians mm -hmm. who are carrying on the Mongolian lineage and the people in China are kind of, ethnically connected with us but not mm -hmm. this that is not region is not mongolia how, how did, what is their perspective on it the people of mongolia? yes that's a very good question and then so uh, yes independent country of mongolia as you know was uh, kind of um, you know heavily the, uh, the soviet union influence was very strong for in the you know the from from 19 uh 1920 through all the way to 1990s until soviet union collapsed right so during that period of time almost 70 years it's almost like you know the um the connection or relationship between southern mongolia and northern mongolia is cut off uh because of uh you know the the well uh deteriorating uh deteriorated chinese uh and uh, soviet union relationship in the 1950s especially so so the mongolia um independent mongolians in the independent country of mongolia uh at least the younger generation really did not have the opportunity to understand the real history of mongolia and uh, but um, fortunately, after 1990s, uh, you know, Mongolia turned to um, the democratic country. And then especially uh, after like 2000, 2010, uh, thanks to the social media, Internet and, and um, you know, more frequent uh, communication between the uh, southern Mongolia and the northern Mongolia. Now the citizens of northern Mongolia or independent country of Mongolia, they uh, uh, really understand the situation of uh, South Mongolia very well now. 
uh, and that they are very sympathetic to the situation of southern Mongolia. They they know that this part of Mongolia is actually is is um, a part of the Greater Mongolia uh, in history. So it's, it's historical Mongolian territory. It's not just Chinese, uh, you know, uh, province. The Mongolians uh, now um, almost like uh, not only just in uh, you know Mongolians from independent country uh, of Mongolia, but also from the Buryat and Kalmyk and then all Mongolians around the world now they know that um, you know the real boundary between Mongolia and China is just one great uh, great wall. That's it. I mean, uh, it's it's nothing. Uh, it's it's so clear. Uh, I always mention to my uh, um, fellow Mongolians that look are like actually there's no this there should not be any dispute between mongolia and china about like you know uh, our clear boundary it's like we have great wall in uh, you know uh, between us for two more than two thousand years this is not just mongolians uh, you know uh, this is not the, the something that Mongolians do the, or the Mongolians built. The, the, the Chinese, they themselves, like not only they built uh, they, during, uh, you know, 2000 years ago and then, uh, you know, the fortified during all dynastic cycle, but also now, even now they, they really, you know, the Chinese government, the Chinese people, they strongly feel that this is, the, this is actually their real, you know, boundary between Mongolia. So, so it's it's um, uh, northern Mongolia, independent country of Mongolia, uh, is now they are uh, even though there's like uh, some period of like seventy years isolation now they are realizing that we are the same people we share the same culture we share the same language we are the same people we are descendant of Genghis Khan, uh, so uh, and especially from last year. As you know, there there was a um, you know large scale protest across South Mongolia, uh, defending their right to uh, use their mother tongue. Um, the Chinese government came up with a new uh, policy called second generation bilingual education to just uh, wipe out the Mongolian language in in all uh, educational system across South Mongolia, uh, and. Uh, uh, Southern Mongolians, uh, like oh, entire Southern Mongolian population was against that. And then they stood up to uh, say no to the Chinese government. And then, uh, of course, uh, not only Mongolians from Southern Mongolia, but also Mongolians around the world from the independent country of Mongolia, Buryat, Kalmyk, they all uh, joined this, this uh, protest. And uh, there, there have been... Uh, uh, many many protests in uh, around the world in front of the Chinese embassies and so on. So yes, they realize that. Look, especially the citizens of northern Mongolia, they realize that. Look, uh, the Chinese threat is not Chinese problem. It's not just just occupying southern Mongolia. It's actually they are just wiping out southern Mongolia, well, including Tibet, East Turkestan. And then their goal is to actually even, it's not a secret in China now that they are trying to even re, uh, claiming that independent country of Mongolia is their inseparable uh, part of uh, historical China or, or like that's that's what they are claiming. So the Mongolian citizens, citizens of Mongolia now realize that this 
this threat is very imminent. And then this is just, you know, not only threatening the, the existence of their, their brothers and sisters in South Mongolia, but also it's, it's threatening their independence and sovereignty. That's that's what how they, they feel. So this is not just last year's protest is not just protest against the uh, land, you know language policy. This is actually against China's uh, aggression. This China's just territorial claim. China's just you know hegemony. So it's it's uh, uh, now the Mongolians are really united uh, against China. Chinese uh, you know aggression. It sounds very similar to um, what's happening in the South China Sea, with where they're kind of expanding their exactly. uh, mm-hmm. their region of control using artificial islands mm-hmm. in order to claim more geographical territory. That's quite a that's a staple Chinese tactic, as is the language control that you mentioned. Exactly. Uh, can can we go back to that for a second, and maybe you can uh, tell people about the um, about the language control issue, the mm-hmm. uh, bilingual. Uh, what is it called? The bilingual education policy. Uh, yes. Where does that come in? And maybe you can talk about the uh, differences in script between uh, northern and southern Mongolia and how that plays into mm-hmm. uh, cultural uh, traditions and things like that. Yes, sure. So, so the um, the official um, euphemism of of this policy or this movement campaign by the Chinese government is called. Uh, implementing the second generation bilingual education in South Mongolia. And then they call, they, they said like uh, uh, minority regions like South Mongolia uh, must start using Chinese as the only um, medium of instruction in all, all schools, uh, colleges, even kindergartens. So as part of China's broader uh, policy of second generation ethnic policy. So that the, they said uh, now uh, China is after like uh, 70 years of um, implementing the ethnic policy. Now China started uh, realizing that, hey, look, we should implement the second generation, the renew uh, or, you know, new version of ethnic policy, which means like, which which says that, hey, look, 55 uh, ethnic minorities, they are all Chinese nationalities. So they are um, not supposed to highlight or emphasize their individual ethnic policy. Instead, they should uh, just say, hey, look, I'm a Zhonghua Minzu member or, or Chinese, just simply put this to Chinese. So that's, that's their policy, the so-called second generation ethnic policy. So unless, that, unless, of, unless, of course, they're uh, performing on Chinese TV, in which case they have to do the traditional dance. Exactly. And they present themselves in a traditional dress. So there's exactly. a very specific defined role for yep. each one of the ethnic minority groups, whereas like this is the, the state media seems to push this policy where it's like okay this is the these are the boundaries in which we're comfortable yes uh, of, f- to have you express your mongolianness yes but we so, don't want you to go beyond that exactly so that that's that's you know pretty much just just they are keeping the 55 uh 
so-called ethnic minority as a just just showcase for for the showcase or displaying the uh you know the, telling the world that hey look um, china is a multi multinational multi-ethnic uh country and so on. so it's in reality they are not allowed to practice their tradition practice their culture use their language so they they uh everybody must speak chinese and then so the, so that's that's where the this policy started last year, last June, um, the central government uh, sent some some high-ranking officials to to South Mongolia, and then they just uh, unofficially told the local authorities of Tonliao municipality and that saying that hey, look, we are preparing to implement the second generation bilingual education uh, and then they said like they verbally they there is no official document issued from the central government they said and then of course they knew that they knew that their the resistance will be very strong and so they they came to a uh, municipality and then they left and then they said well many uh, mongolians are so concerned because the mongolians think that their their language is their almost the last defense of their their national identity because you know the uh, if you look at the mongolian history right south mongolian history well at the beginning we were promised to uh, be given the um, autonomy nationality or ethnic whatever you call it but it was autonomy, which turned out to be just just uh, lie, and then a lie, and then there's no no uh, autonomy at all, and there's no political rights, and then the Mongolians were purged, the Mongolians were subject to um, uh, large scale uh, ethnic cleansing, genocide, and political purge, and then so and then later on our our uh, the way of uh, life, traditional nomadic way of life was completely wiped out and our environment is destroyed. So the language is the only, only pretty much the only, um, you know, aspect of Mongolian uh, identity. It was, all, it was also quite um, ironic, isn't it, that the, in southern Mongolia, you managed to maintain the, uh, the traditional script, where yes. in the north, that was mm -hmm. actually lost to the Cyrillic alphabet. Is that right? Yes, absolutely right. So the, this also actually um, has to do with uh, the Chinese policy and the Soviet Union policy at that time. In the 19, up until 1950s, uh, you know, Southern Mongolia and independent country of Mongolia, we had only one script, which is traditional, you know, classic top to bottom uh, script. Um, which is just, just you know, uh, the Mongolians have been, had been using that for, for like many centuries, uh, in, even before 13th century. But, and yeah, the, the reason why Mongolia, Southern Mongolia was able to maintain the traditional script is not because the Chinese government is really, you know, just uh, tolerant or they, they're just... Uh, 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 they, they just allow the Mongolians to do that, but they one one explanation which widely accepted by the Mongolians that China Chinese uh, government wanted to divide these two Mongolians in in like uh, for example in written language they, if 
if the if southern Mongolians maintain keep their their traditional script, and if northern Mongolia turn to uh, you know Cyrillic alphabet, two Mongolians have no way to communicate. That's that's the purpose. Yes, which a lot of Mongolians agree, and then uh, that's the historical you know background of why southern Mongolia was able to. Now you you see the Chinese government realized that there's now no need for Mongolia. They, you know uh, the southern Mongolia to maintain that now they are wiping out entirely so the, not only your script but your language also yeah because if you in, if you in, if you uh, pursue that policy then mm-hmm. you really just have to wait a few generations and the exactly. Mongolian people themselves create mm-hmm. a divide yes. I really have to emphasize to anybody who's listening if you don't know what uh, traditional Mongolian script is type it into Google traditional Mongolian mm-hmm. script and you will realize mm-hmm how offensive it is to me personally <laughs> to lose this script because it's just the most beautiful thing and to um to have this kind of a unique unique uh, way of communicating um yes. now undermined when i was in uh when i lived there in southern mongolia in hohot you know mm-hmm. you can see it i could see it everywhere you can see it on all the on mm-hmm. all the signs you can see it on uh, especially in shops and things like that it was a way of uh, mo- local Mongolian population to communicate mm-hmm. with each other to say, "Hey, we are a community here. Mm-hmm. We still yes. have this thing in common. We're still part of exactly. something that we have these shared identity." And now to know that those those shop signs have lost the have lost that uh, that script, yes, which was no, not harming anybody. There was no there's there's no element of um, <laughs> subterfuge. There was no exactly. element of yeah. you know trying to be separate or something like that. It was just <laughs> a way to bring people together. Yep, and it so, was just felt like such a strong community. And to see that undermined now was it was it, you know it. it I, it's completely. You know, I, yeah. I took it personally, and I have <laughs> little, little to no connection at all. But to know that to see that this uh, that this policy is being enforced now in China was it's just very disturbing. You know that this script is very unique, as you mentioned. It's just, uh, you know written. The, I think it's the only existing, uh, you know, script that is truly solely written top to bottom. And then a lot of people say, hey, look, Chinese can you know, be written top to bottom. Well, they can also in the same time, they can be written left, left to right. And But Mongolian script is true vertical script, only existing vertical script. And so um, this is the reason why actually also so many um mongolians around the world hey look this is very unique our just is really it's it's our identity and then now you're just wiping this out completely so um uh, as you mentioned the, the, those signs and the, you know banners in in, uh, in south mongolia now the street signs in mongolians are almost it's it's just you know uh, part of the, the, the so-called campaign for inculcating the, uh, uh, the firm sense of Chinese nationality, common identity. And so this campaign is targeting all the signs and uh, sculptures in Mongolian characteristics. And they, they're uh, taking down all this. And so there, uh, there have been many uh, like pictures and uh, videos we received uh, from Southern Mongolia showing that even the, those like um, buildings for you know schools and the Mongolian schools those those 
signs in Mongolians are all taken down and then replaced with the Chinese. So that is why Mongolians around the world consider this campaign as a de facto cultural genocide. It's the aim is very clear. They want to wipe out this nation uh, entirely by wipe, wiping out their culture. Look, if, if we lose our culture, if we lose our language, if we lose our way of life, if we lose our identity, who, who, who are we? We, we just, just, we will become just another province of plain Chinese, uh, you know, nation. So, so you'll become you'll become something like the other. I mean, people talk about the fifty-five um, ethnic minority groups in yep. China, and everybody knows the Tibetans, and everybody knows, you know, maybe the Uyghurs and the Mongolians. But there's also all the small ones, yes, who have who are all basically have been integrated into Chinese exactly. culture now, and they're yes. all basically mm-hmm. just Chinese citizens. There isn't a strong there isn't a strong sense of identity the way there is for them. Mongolians or the Uyghurs or the Kazakhs or something like that. Exactly. So I think is that the objective is to is not to approach they're not approaching the problem from the Tibetan side. They're approaching mm-hmm. it actually from the side of the other fifty successfully absolutely. Um, assimilated ethnic minority groups. Yes, absolutely, you are right. So look, uh, Chinese government is uh, you know they have different approaches to different. These three nations, these three nations are main headaches, right? Uh, the rest, like as you mentioned, the rest of the uh, ethnic minorities, including like Zhuang uh, and, you know, like there are many, many Miao, Yibai, they were just like pretty much, uh, you know, well, I would say successfully being integrated into, into Chinese society, but still the government of China is keeping them as a separate nation in order to, show the world that hey look we are you know multi-ethnic nation and then we we have a different they they don't have their language they don't have their uh, right uh, you know written system writing system and they don't have their separate way of life and then they speak Chinese. so look only when it need needed when there's like the so-called uh, you know two meetings or something like <laughs> gathering a big occasional like you know uh when they celebrate the um national holiday they just bring up these people and then just just uh, you know let them just have, have their traditionalness which is just in, in the on the screen only in the real life they are not allowed to use their language nothing i mean so they exactly want to make the turn southern Mongol, Mongolians into the one of these nations. And uh, the, again, we may you also mentioned that Tibetan, uh, you know, Uyghurs. So they have Chinese government have different approach to them, like you know what's happening in in East Turkestan or the so-called Xinjiang, uh, uh, you know, uh, Uyghur autonomous region. And and also Tibet, you know, Tibetan issue is well known, and uh, the Uyghurs are now recently under, uh, you know, going uh, undergoing the uh, active uh, genocide. It's it's a real genocide, physical genocide that Mongolians actually experienced in the 1960s and 70s. Very similar to that. Um, so so um, many people uh, say that hey, look, is is Southern Mongolia is turning to the second 
Xinjiang or uh, Inner Mongolia is turning to second Xinjiang. I said, look, actually the Uyghurs are becoming the se second Southern Mongolians. We have already experienced these genocide. Look, we at least Southern Mongolians are so far uh, Southern Mongolians experience at least two major genocide. One is the fiscal genocide that, that I mentioned earlier in during the 1960s and 70s. All Mongolian, all entire Southern Mongolian population were subjected to just you know state-sponsored uh, genocide in the name of purging the members of Inner Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. Well, the, 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 that party existed in 1920th and until 1940s. You know, and then after, you know, the China took, the Chinese Communist Party took over South Mongolia, this, uh, this party, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the party ceased, uh, didn't exist. I mean, after that, uh, so there's no no uh, Inner Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party, but the government of China, hey, look, this is a good, uh, you know, um, uh, excuse for them to hey, say that, hey, look, this, this party is still active and members of this party are still actively trying to separate the split the country. And then they started the genocide using this as an excuse and saying that, hey, look, a lot of underground uh, members of this organization is still active. And then they started purging, so-called the purging movement. And then um, according to the Chinese official statistics about uh, 20,000 Mongolians were uh, tortured to death. If this is just Chinese official statistics, but Mongolians believe that at least 100,000 Southern Mongolians were, uh, you know, um, persecuted and tortured to death. So this is the the uh, real the first defect like textbook <laughs> genocide, the, the real genocide, physical genocide. Uh, that happened in, in, in China. And now the Uyghurs are going through the similar genocide, but or at least the government of China is not just directly torturing them to death. They are just putting them into concentration camp. And, you know, according to some reports, it's like more than 2 million, close to 3 million Uyghurs are in concentration camp. So yes, it is very similar to what, what happened in Thanama. And then the second, gener uh, second uh, genocide that I mentioned is, of course, ongoing cultural genocide. Because, you know, the physical genocide was actually not able to completely wipe out this nation of Southern Mongolia. Mong Southern Mongolians are very resilient people. And then they just, you know, they, they still embrace the culture. They still speak their language. So this bothered the government of China. And then now they are like, okay, so like physical genocide could not wipe you out. Now let's use the cultural genocide to just wipe you out. So the goal is, end goal is the same. Uh, you know, the end goal for the, the, the uh, uh, genocide in uh, East Turkestan and genocide in, in Tibet, genocide in South Mongolia is the same to just completely wipe out these three nations so that China will become homogeneous Chinese society where everybody speaks Chinese, Putonghua. There's no you know, worry of ethnic problem, no worry of separatism, no worry of like, uh, you know, uh, 
independence and then you know call for independence and call for uh freedom so they just uh want you to become just just plain chinese uh citizens that's that's all they want to do you can see this pattern in uh yeah like in these three in these three regions uh quite clearly do how do you think about um hong kong do you think that their motivations are the same with hong kong that, that this is what because i have I really have struggled to understand the motivations for mm -hmm. uh, China in the last, you know, 10 years to assimilate, to try to assimilate Hong Kong. It seemed mm -hmm. to me like everything was working very well, mm -hmm. the, you know, in the kind of one country, two, you know, two, two, system. uh, mm -hmm. two systems way. Everything was kind of going fine. Hong Kong was, you know, providing a lot of economic powerhouse, everything like mm -hmm. that. And now in the last few years, they've tried to assimilate Hong Kong to become mm -hmm. just another Chinese city. And I don't see the incentive unless it's unless it is something like what you're saying, mm -hmm. where they're it's a, they're afraid of having multiple cultures, multiple um, yes. claims to identity, multiple identities, group identities mm -hmm. within China. Do you think that there's do you, well? First of all, do you feel like um, do you count? Would you count uh, Hong Kongers among? Mm -hmm. Like other as something like one of the ethnic minority groups of China, do you feel like they're part of the part of the family, as it were, or is that a you feel like that's more of a separate thing? Well, look, the Hong Kongers, especially uh, after like uh, you know um, the recent uh, major protest, and then Hong Kongers are actually we we have been working uh, with uh, you know Hong Kong activists so closely. And then they are now increasingly, increasingly identifying themselves as separate from Chinese. They, they don't, well, ethnically, yes, they are Chinese. Taiwanese are Chinese ethnically, but they don't, they don't consider themselves Chinese because, ironic. because of the, what's happening in China. Yeah. So look, look, um, there's, there's a, like, uh, the, you know, the Chinese government, uh, always come up with a very convenient excuse oh look look one one use you know western world democratic world bring up chinese human rights issues uh china you know uh chinese government always say oh because this is you know chinese uh, uh, those forces like for western forces are anti-china or anti-chinese uh, you know uh forces trying to do something blah blah and but look those Chinese in Hong Kong and then Chinese in Taiwan are also anti-Chinese too. How can you explain that? Because, because this is because what you are doing is not right. Look, look especially when you, you mentioned the Hong Kong. Hong Kong, there was agreement, clear agreement between the, you know, Hong Kongers and then, you know, um, the Chinese government, right? 50 years, they're not going to change anything. Well, look, it's not even in the uh, you know uh, halfway of the fifty years. Yeah, they just... didn't even they didn't even get ten or they, they didn't even get fifteen years into it before yeah, that and, was uh, undermined. And then you just change everything. <laughs> so how 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 can you just give people the like, confidence that you know uh, living under this this regime is you know like uh, uh, safe and uh, secure? Like you, you just like most basic, the Hong Kongers or actually they 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 enjoyed certain degree of, well, I mean, you know, under the British rule, right? Uh, 
democracy, they know the, the taste of democracy. <laughs> they know, well, even though they were not fully, I mean, in democratic, I mean, we know that by the history, but they, at least, especially in the past decade, two decades, they, the Hong Kongers, they, their sense of, especially the young generation, the sense of democracy and human rights is very strong. It's a totally different uh, group of people, even though ethnically they are Chinese. So. China, look, look, you know, Chinese government, you cannot Chinese government, uh, trust the Chinese government and, uh, you know, at all. They've got, they, they just give you, promise you everything and then they just immediately change your, look, if, if the government of China can keep like 50 years, they promise to just maintain the situation in, in Hong Kong uh, for 50 years, then you, you, you have some credit for, for, you know, people, for us, for, so look, Hong Kongers are even even if they are Chinese, they are like I would say they are separatists. They majority of the Hong Kongers, they they say they want look, they want the total freedom. Uh, we worked with so many Hong uh, you know um, Hong Kong organizations. They 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 wanted to to have total freedom uh, out of China. So imagine that like people who have a different culture, different history, like like uh, Mongolians, Tibetans, and Uyghur. We feel even stronger um, to to you know have how our separate nation, separate uh, uh, country. That, that that's why where why those these people like in in South uh, Mongol uh, South Mongolia, uh, East Turkestan and Tibet, actually in their deep in their heart and mind, these people really want to have their separate uh, nations, even though they the they didn't probably because of uh, you know uh, uh, some um, uh, some other consideration. For example, the government of uh, exile in, in Tibetan government of exile, and then um, Uyghur organization. They might not just openly saying, "Hey, we we want uh, independence," but in their heart and mind, uh, no question, because the the only way is to. The only way to guarantee the uh, the real human rights, human dignity, uh, you know, national identity is the independence, political independence. No question. There's no, you know, like look, even uh, human uh, United Nations human human rights uh, declaration of universal declaration of human rights. In uh, you know uh, rights, uh, the declaration of rights of indigenous peoples. All these documents clearly say, say say that the nations and peoples around the world have the right to self political self-determination well self-determination includes total freedom total independence or maybe just some federation autonomy but none of this work in 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 the chinese well, it can't really work it can't really work in the chinese context if the chinese government if the ccp is trying to align uh, their own ideology with being Chinese, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's like if they're trying to make it the one and the same thing, like to be Chinese and to be a member of the Communist Party and exactly. to uh, yes. and to subscribe to the ideology. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't subscribe to the ideology, there is actually no alternative except to not exactly. be Chinese. Mm -hmm. And if you're not Chinese, then and you're living in China, that makes you a separatist. It's like you don't have you don't really have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> like you either subscribe, you either subscribe 100, the, the CCP are actually forcing your hand 
if you don't Absolutely. believe in their mm -hmm. ideology. So you, you, you cannot have any uh, freedom of believing, like, well, forget about this national, uh, you know, sub, uh, independence or if you cannot even have the right to speak your language. I, I, imagine that. I mean, look, look, if you are tolerant about our just identity, just well, the, the majority probably you already like, you know, uh, harsh enough to crack down on all <laughs> political separatism for, for in the past 70 years. So people already is really, I mean, there's no people really have the, um, uh, so, so I would say like, not many people have the gut to really stand up to say, hey, look, we, we want a political freedom, except for few, like, for example, Mr. Hada, who's like, despite <laughs> 20 years of imprisonment and cracking down and then torture and all the, the Mongolian activists, Mr. Hada, he's still saying that publicly, whenever there's a chance, he is publicly saying that, okay, Mongolians must obtain their political independence no question and so the chinese government actually gave up like they use all torture like hard and soft and then they so so he well now he's he's disappeared but he except for him including look ilham Tokti, you know the, the uyghur activist he was saying he was just he merely said like hey look what uyghurs want is just leave us alone we will just be part of china and then we'll just practice our own uh, you know culture use our own uh, language and then that's autonomy you promise you can that's what he was just trying to you know materialize and then that was even considered a separate he was you know arrested sentence uh, to life in prison or so so this is this is what I'm like. Look, even His Holiness Dalai Lama is saying that, okay, Tibet will not seek, uh, Tibet is not seeking for political independence. Yes, we are okay to be part of China, but what the government of China is saying to them, you, his, you Dalai Lama, I said, the, you know, head of the separatist clique, blah, blah, blah. So how, how there's no room for, okay, the only, actually, you know what? It's, it's the only way. The, you know, for, for the, uh, Mon the Mongolians, Tibetan and we to get freedom is nothing but political independence. This is the who enforces this is government of China. It's not really these people really want you. You just, you know, forcing these people to feel that there's only option, only life and death. There's no, no other, you know, uh, middle way to uh, exist within the borders of China, right? You either die or you get independent. So the, those who want to live, uh, you know, live as uh, with the dignity, want to be, f you know, free to get their independence. That's the only way left there. There was a when I lived in uh, southern Mongolia, there was a moment which really um, highlighted for me the um, the kind of shared uh, friendship and connection between the Tibetans and the Mongolians. I had a student. Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching there at the time and I had a student um, who was Tibetan mm -hmm. oh. and uh, met her, met her, met, no, sorry, uh, I had a student who was Mongolian mm -hmm. and uh, I met her family and I was surprised mm -hmm. to find that both of her parents were Tibetans no, okay. and uh, they had a little uh, Buddhist kind of a shop, you know, they sold their, the, the oh. Tibetan stuff when it was allowed and um, 
I was speaking to them about this. I was quite surprised. I was like, okay, so you're, you're both Tibetan. You have a, you have a Mongolian daughter mm -hmm. and a Tibetan son. Mm -hmm. And they explained to me, they were like, yeah, we decided to uh, register our son as Tibetan. So uh -huh. he's going to carry the family bloodline and, you know, everything like this and represent the nation, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And the daughter, we want her to be educated and to travel the world and to, you know, things like oh. that. So the Mongolian identity is a little bit better for her. So we decided to register <laughs> her <laughs> as Mongolian. I thought that that was, it was quite funny. It's quite sad, of course, but it's also yeah. funny. And it's also somehow inspiring that there can be this kind of a shared identity and shared friendship. Absolutely. You, you know, the, the, if you if you look at the uh, the history uh, uh, the, of Mongolia and uh, Tibet, right, we uh, have been especially, you know, from the, the religious perspective, uh, we share the same religion for for many many centuries and you know even among our in in our mongolian culture there there's a lot of uh, tibetan influence and then also in tibetan culture there's a lot of mongolian influence too uh, well i mean uh, the very uh, the institution of uh, dalai lama and panjaneritin is actually uh, uh, you know uh, officially um, become official institution uh, by the Mongolian, uh, you know, um, the Mongolians. So the uh, uh, the first Dalai Lama was, of course, uh, it's it's uh, not called Dalai Lama. And then, uh, you know, the, actually the third was, uh, you know, the first the, uh, the called Dalai Lama for, and then the, the other uh, two previous two Dalai Lamas posthumously, uh, you know, uh, given the title of uh, Dalai Lama, you know, the, uh, as you know, the Dalai, Dalai is among, Dalai is Mongolian or ocean, you know, or ocean of wisdom and, and all that. So yeah, we, we shared um, a lot of uh, history, common history and culture and religion is same religion. <laughs> and then even, you know, uh, at least there are two, two, Dalai Lamas were Mongolians in, in, the, in the past. So, uh, and, and then we I, I always, uh, you know, when, when I talk to my uh, Tibetan friends, I always say, look, hey, look, uh, we not only share the, our past, uh, we also share our future. We also sh share the same suffering from the government of China, the, you know, Chinese regime. So uh, our fate, our future is really, you know, uh, also very similar. Um, uh, the his island is also uh, visited Mongolia many many times. Uh, Mongol government of Mongolia, despite the strong pressure from uh, government of China, uh, still was able to uh, host him, invite him, and then so this this tells you you know it's it's a pretty risky business for for <laughs> government of China. I mean government of Mongolia to invite. Uh, you know, his uh, holiness, but they were doing it. So it's, it's a, this tie is not not just you know uh, ordinary ties. We really have a very strong tie in the you know in the past, even now, and then even in the future. Here in Estonia, the Dalai Lama was uh, hosted a few years ago as well, and that uh, you might know that uh, here in uh, the Baltic states, they have been quite uh, <laughs> quite uh, defensive about their right to invite who they want. Oh yes, um, in spite of in spite of that kind of uh, power, in spite of that kind of pressure, I'm conscious of uh, trying to not. Sp I don't want to spend our entire conversation talking about China, 
<laughs> yes, uh, because it's like you know, it's yes, it's it's the it's the it's the elephant in the room, but I also really want to uh, take time to understand more about Mongolia as well. Could you kind of paint a picture of? Uh, we've talked a lot about Mongolian culture. We talked a little bit about language, the script as well. But but what what else are we talking about when we talk about Mongolian culture? Maybe something we can see in both the north and the south. Well, uh, we were uh, again, right? We uh, Mongolians from both uh, north and south are the same people. We speak the same language. There's of course some some the variance be, variance between you know just like dialect uh, differences that but that's not a big big a big deal. And then we still. Um, understand each other uh, just without any <laughs> any problem uh, just compared to like uh, you know Cantonese and uh, <laughs> Cantonese and Mandarin I mean uh, it's, these are almost Cantonese and Mandarin is all they, they are almost two different languages I mean but southern Mongolians and northern Mongolians there are some dialect but we have no problem understanding each other and then yes again uh, you know uh, we our histories like uh, if you look look at our history, they, it was like um, uh, after the Second World War, uh, we were just divided into two. Uh, otherwise, we were just always uh, pretty much just just uh, one nation. And then, especially when when Mongolia gained the uh, restored their independence in 1911. Uh, in in fact. The majority of the fighters or strong advocates of the independence were, were from southern Mongolia, and then even in the independent country of Mongolia right now, two out of the three national heroes of the independence movement were, were southern Mongolians. So this independent country of Mongolia was built by the, the effort of all Mongolians, not only Southern Mongolia, actually at that time, the Mongolians from Buryat, Kalmyk, all part of the Mongolians actually participated, joined the effort of uh, having a, an independent nation after the collapse of Qing Empire. Because, you know, Mongolians uh, felt that the Qing, Qing Empire, the Mongolians, we're just at that time in, with the Manchu, we were just, just uh, you know, co-rulers. Okay, so the uh, co-rulers doesn't no longer exist. So the, the, we're just getting independence, natural thing. But however, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Chinese people started claiming that now, okay, Qing collapsed. Now it's my turn to become your boss. And then you, what is <laughs> Well, like all at that time, like Mongolians were laughed at them. What are you talking about? And you, you think we are part of you? No, look, never been part of uh, Chinese. Yes, we were part of the uh, uh, Qing Empire. So uh, I know I just uh, said to I want to move the move away from talking about China, but I have always found it kind of strange and confusing when China talks about having a, a five thousand year unbroken oh. history, but it's. <laughs> clearly broken up into many different kingdoms none of which could be <laughs> called exactly none of which is similar to present day china all of them look completely different you can't you know you can't i'm not sure about the how reasonable it is to claim that a small farming community somewhere mm -hmm. in kind of mid north west china mm -hmm. which existed you know 5000 years ago is the same thing as the present exactly. day you know uh People's Republic of China. It seems to be like something of a broken line. I'm not I'm not quite I'm not quite buying the, the exactly. Yeah, this is a very uh, you know uh, it's it's a very illogic 
and then you can they just 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 doesn't make any sense so yeah the reason why we have to like uh, whenever we talk about the issue of mongolia southern mongolian issues mongolian issues why we uh, you know uh, have to talk about chinese because it's it's really <laughs> our issues look mongolians did, did not have any problem you know the problem of mongolia is china nothing nobody else. <laughs> the tibetan problem is china the Uyghur problem is China. World problem is China now. This is like the you know whole world is <laughs> realizing that now. It's a China is a problem of the world. That's why like, without talking about China, it's really hard to talk about all the root cause of the the problem human beings are like our humanity is facing now, including you know the erosion of democracy and then all these things. It's just really. I mean, unfortunately, we don't really want, wanted to talk about China, but it has to, you know, come up. <laughs> Chinese problems to come up. So yes, uh, let's go back to the try to go back to the, the original question you asked, like uh, the you know the cultural similarity or difference between Southern Mongolia. And, uh, we don't, the, you know, the we were both like uh, well, I mean, I was uh, I wouldn't say I shouldn't say both. We 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 are the same people, so we uh, as a Mongolians we. Uh, practice our traditional way of life is a nomadic way of life um this uh well uh, in southern mongolia uh this nomadic way of life is actually as uh the prime target for the of the chinese uh, uh campaign for for wiping out mongolian identity uh this actually intensified this uh, you know uh policy of um Erasing Mongolian traditional way of life intensified in 2001. Uh, the government of uh, central government of China came up with the idea of um, that so-called um, ecological migration. Uh, eco um, ecological migration. Uh, the reason why the government of China um, adopted this policy is that, the, according to their official explanation. The environmental, um, the uh, e ecosystem of Southern Mongolia, grassland ecosystem, was uh, seriously uh, damaged by the traditional backward way of uh, nomadic way of life. So that's that's what they, the government of China explained why they are, uh, you know, implementing this policy. And then they said, look. Nomadic way of life is very archaic, backward way of life that is very uh, harsh to the environment, which is completely lie. I mean, actually, the, the traditional nomadic way of life maintained the delicate balance of men and nature for, for thousands of years. But the government of China came up with this idea, and then compared they, with, uh, for example, building a, a city over yes. over that land which is exactly. completely in harmony with uh, maintaining yes, that's, the nature that's what they said. yeah they said look hey uh, so that is why the all of these uh herders uh the pastor pastoralist herders have to move off their land to move to the city which is more advanced way of life like you know agricultural and urban areas where you can have uh, you know, uh, contact with the more advanced culture. Well, who, who, who's advanced? Culture? Of course, the Chinese. Uh, the, you know, way of life, and then that that started in officially started in two thousand one, and then according to the Chinese official uh, statement by the Chinese uh, state council, in two thousand fifteen, China officially uh, you know announced that 
by end of 2015, China would, it was like the, the statement was, I think, published in 2014 or so, like a year before the, I think a year or two before the end of uh, 2015, they said China would, uh, China would, uh, you know, resettle the remaining uh, nomadic population of 1.1 million. This includes Mongolians, of course, and then some Tibetans and Kazakhs. And so look, that means by end of 2015, the nomadic civilization that was, you know, that lasted for, for several thousand years in the Mongolian plateau and Tibetan plateau officially put to an end. That the world didn't, the world doesn't, didn't pay attention to this. This is, this is a big, huge, huge, like it's, this is just another way of, uh, you know, uh, cultural genocide. They're just completely wiping out your traditional world. There is now in South Mongolia, there is a no real sense of nomadism or like pastoralism. You just, you know, like grazing your livestock on your own land is considered as crime. They just, they came up with, uh, you know, many policies and then they even set up special forces called Jimmudi, Jimmudi uh, Livestock Grieving Ban Task Force. And then they, those people are just like armed force. They were given guns and the bullets and to, you know, shoot animals. Like for, for example, horse, if they're grazing on the land, they can, they can directly shoot them. And then, you know, they kill them and they just, you know, uh, arrest them. I mean, they, they just uh, confiscate their livestock and then, you know, the owners are uh, given fines and even sometimes, you know, detained and imprisoned. So this was like, this, this happened in 2001, started 2001. And so, so after like all, 20 years of this you know, implementing, implementation of this policy, Mongolian traditional way of life, became non-existent. You can, you can see some yurt and then some grassland, some animal, those are just choking. The Mongolians are not allowed to practice their traditional way of life. So now what, what left? Language, uh, as I mentioned. So the only remaining, <laughs> remaining, you know, defense, last defense is just of Mongolian identity is language. We, we, we Mongolians, other Mongolians speak, well, not all of them, but at least majority of the other Mongolians speak, Mongolians. So this bothered Chinese. That is the this is the main, main target now. So look, imagine that you you're you know deprived of your political right. Your your environment is destroyed. Your traditional way of his life is gone. Your economy, you know, traditional economy is gone. Your language is gone. Who who are you? It's, this is the simple. Why this is a simple question? So. This is what exactly government of China is doing to do in Southern Mongolia. They are doing this in different way and with a different approach in East Turkestan and in Tibet. You know, Tibet is like also same. You know, their religion is completely destroyed. And then Uyghurs, yes, the, if the three if you see three Uyghurs or five Uyghurs on the street, shoot them on the spot. That's what the government of China is implementing. It really resonated with me when you. When you mentioned there, the uh, we, we talked about it before, the show, the appearance of kind of harmony. Mm -hmm. uh, in, if you go to uh, Southern Mongolia today, you can you can sign up for tours that yes. will 
tell yeah. you that where Chinese people will tell you you're going to go and you're going to see the traditional mm -hmm. Mongolian way of life. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they mm -hmm. will take you out into the into kind of a grassy area. Mm -hmm. um, of which I won't call the grasslands, but a grassy area that has been constructed mm -hmm. for this purpose with somebody yes. who's wearing a national dress mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of like presents the show to you. I mean, that was why this is the reason that I, I left China actually in the first place. I when I, I lived in Hohot and I'll tell you the story. I was walking one day mm -hmm. and I was struggling with these things about China and how everything seemed to be fake all the time oh. and manufactured. And I was walking through the street and I saw I passed it through a park and there was a rock mm -hmm. and I saw this rock. And then I realized this lock, this rock looks strange. <laughs> and I realized it was a fake rock. <laughs> well, thought, a fake yeah, yeah. rock. Like how far do you have to go in your yes, planning? To faking, right? To faking. fake a rock. It was a rock made of plastic. <laughs> it's put there for the purposes of creating this like illusion. And it, just at that moment, everything around me suddenly seemed, it was like I was in the matrix and I would just woke up and realized all of this is completely <laughs> fake and constructed. And at that moment, I realized I had to leave. Yeah. You know, that's so, the reason I'm, I didn't stay there um, any longer. I had to leave. Yes, I think I think you you made the, the very uh, you know right uh, choice. I mean, it's it's really in living in China. Well, personally, um, I left China. I, I feel really lucky to you know just just leave China that not to live in that that kind of environment, that kind of uh, you know under that kind of political system um i mean if you're comfortable could you tell me about uh leaving china and what the what the story is there what was the circumstances that that made you feel like you had to leave uh, uh yes uh you know um i was uh i, I was uh, born grew up there and then i uh, did my actually college in in the um uh university of southern mongolia and uh, i was uh, well, there's for the, the Mongolian students who are educated in Mongolia, and there were not many choices in uh, colleges and universities. So I was uh, majoring in Mongolian language and literature um, in in the um, in uh, southern universities of southern Mongolia, and then I graduated from there. And then um, I uh, I was actually I learned, um, studied Japanese by myself, and then I uh, actually became a Japanese translator and then worked for a Jap Japanese Chinese company for, for three years. And then, well, during that period of time, of course, uh, you know, I was um, uh, very active in, in um, uh, just advocate, well, not real of real sense of advocacy because advocate was, uh, advocacy work is non-existent so it's everything is underground pretty much so I was actually a friend with uh, Mr. Hada who, uh, who was uh, uh, later on sent sentenced to um, uh, 15 years in jail for, for organizing as uh, running an organization called Southern Mongolian Democratic Alliance and uh, so writing some uh, books uh, uh, for the Southern Mongolian future. So, uh, and then uh, I was also part of that uh, organization. And then, um, um, so in 1995, after my graduation, one year after my graduation, so uh, uh, I was working for the, the company that I mentioned. And then uh, I, 
uh, received the news. I was not in uh, the the uh, regional capital Hohat. I was in a different place in in um, uh, it's Linghe. It's just the capital of Bainor um, League. Um, it's like uh, western part of South Mongolia. I received some news about the arrest and uh, uh, arrest of Mr. Hada and then crackdown of the organization in Hohat. And it was in uh, December 10th, actually on Human Rights Day and December 10th, 1995, <laughs> Mr. Hada was arrested and then along with many other members of the organization, um, they were all arrested. And then um, uh, there were also protests in Hohat. And then uh, I felt it was really, I mean, you know, uh, difficult to stay in China. But anyway, I, I, I stayed in the city, which is uh, far from the capital, uh, capital of the region. So, and then um, later on, I learned that I was sentenced to jail and so on. So I, I, I felt it, it's really dangerous to uh, continue to live in, in Southern Mongolia, which is completely under Chinese uh, control, right? So I, I uh, left the country to go to Japan uh, to uh, just, you know, uh, for studying. Was actually, the real purpose is to escaping the Chinese persecution. And then um, uh, from Japan, I came to the United States. Well, after like five months I, uh, living in, in Japan, I came to the United States. And then uh, I set up this organization, the Mongolia Human Rights Information Center. And then um, I, have, I felt that, uh, you know, this is my dream country uh, where I can, uh, you know, express my political opinion. I can, I can you know, uh, raise the awareness of the other Mongolian issues. I can uh, try to uh, do some advocacy work for, for uh, the defense of uh, South Mongolian human rights and then uh, for the, you know, work. Uh, for the release uh, of uh, Mr. Hatta and then uh, his uh, um, fellow members of the organization. So yeah, that's that's uh, where I started uh, working on the human rights issues. Um, so, uh, uh, can you tell me about then? Tell me about the Southern Mongolian Human Rights Information Center. How how big uh, are you now, and um, what is it that you are doing on day to day basis? Yes, uh, my organization was established in 2001. It's like like uh, exactly 20 years ago. And uh, so, yes, um, uh, our organization is not, not, especially at the beginning, it's not big, just few, uh, you know, the South Mongolian exiles like myself here in the United States. And then later on, we... Um, uh, many uh, Southern Mongolian exiles from Japan, uh, Europe, and then Mongolia um, joined us. And, uh, the, you know, again, our organization's main goal is we are not a political organization. We are a human rights organization. So our goal is to just, just you know, uh, publicize the human rights situation of Southern Mongolia to the world, to the uh, international community. So... Uh, we don't advocate for any any like you know, political goal like um, independence or anything. That's not our part of our. Uh, that's not our goal. Our goal is to just publicize the situation of the other Mongolia and then to create uh, uh, the environment 
where people can just uh, you know freely express that that's that's our you know really ultimate goal uh, the uh, so you know, uh, in the past 20 years we uh, have uh, you know worked on uh, mainly focusing on uh, reporting on the human rights violation of South Mongolia including like uh, you know political prisoners issues uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of association, and then indigenous rights issues, and uh, including environmental issues, cultural issues. Uh, the, all these are pretty much just, of course, caused by the government of China and the you know the uh, heavy-handed policy uh, of uh, government of China. So mm, we worked uh, very closely with. Uh, 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 many uh, news media organizations around the world and then we also work closely with uh, the um, uh, US uh, Congress, US, US State Department and then uh, also United uh, Nations. We have a long history working with the United Nations and uh, uh, including United Nations Human Rights Council, United Nations uh, um, the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and so on. And um, also, we um, we have members in in uh, Europe, and uh, we uh, work with uh, European organizations, including European Parliament. We have testified before the uh, European Parliament, also. So we have, we testified before the U.S. Uh, Congress Congressional Executive Committee on China, and yes, the uh, and and. Uh, 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 as a news organization also, you know, organization that's dealing with uh, information, we provided uh, a great deal of information to the uh, news organization, especially when there's like a major protest and, uh, um, you know, movement in South Mongolia, for example, last year, it's like we were really busy providing <laughs> our organization. This is what we, yeah, uh, the, what we have been doing. And then, uh, yes, also we, uh, we dedicate our um, some time to help the um, Southern Mongolian exiles and refugees uh, to uh, help them, um, you know, uh, resettle in, in uh, democratic countries. And then, uh, for example, uh, many Southern Mongolians went into uh, exile in, in the independent country of Mongolia where they cannot stay uh, too long and because you know because of the pressure from the government of China uh, the southern Mongolian exiles cannot really stay too long in, in uh, Mongolia well some of them uh, still uh, staying there but it's, it's really I mean difficult situation is very difficult uh, and so many of them just uh, went to the third country through uh, Mongolia, which uh, also, you know, um, our organization did a lot of uh, work to help them, assist them in, in um, obtaining their um, refugee status with uh, United Nations. And then also uh, we help many refugees to obtain their status um, in asylum status in the United, United States, Europe, and um, Japan. So yeah, this is uh, what we've been doing. And I, I must, I realize uh, we've been speaking for an hour and a half and I haven't, we haven't even talked about books, which is my primary, uh, <laughs> my primary interest. Mm -hmm. And this, <laughs> it shows like 
from my personal experience, I get so caught up in this on the, in mm-hmm. this topic. But I must ask you about um, Mongolian authors and perhaps perhaps about the you know what what their I can guess, but uh, mm-hmm. what their mm-hmm. current situation is in China. I'm assuming it's not good, and that their work is um, strongly prohibited when talking about issues of uh, Mongolian identity and mm-hmm. Mongolian culture. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, absolutely. So look, um, you know, um, the Mongolian writers uh, were, of course, it's, it's just, as you said, as you mentioned, uh, it's, it's, they, they, their situation was horrible. And uh, for example, just, just a recent example, uh, the author of uh, a book uh, entitled um, Chinese Cultural Revolution, um, the author of this book is um, Mr. Borchkin uh, Lamjov. Uh, he just wrote about the genocide, the large-scale genocide that the government of China committed during the uh, the Cultural Revolution in Southern Mongolia. You know the, the genocide that I mentioned earlier. So he interviewed hundreds of people he just you know um just recorded them um and then he just published that book in 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 mongolia and of course in in of course there's no official uh, you know the publishing house um, uh, not is not uh, you know uh, the uh, he's not allowed to publish in, in officially right so he just uh, uh, managed to get a uh book number from from uh, i think it's a hong kong uh bookstore or publishing house or something and then he was able to just uh, you know publish it and and then his book was uh, confiscated and then he was just arrested and then he was uh, i think he was uh, just sentenced to some year it's not because we 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 lost contact with him and then so he was uh, under house arrest we we knew that he's just he just like he uh, I was able to talk to him a couple of times before his, he was uh, arrested. And then he told me that like what he said was what he wrote in the book was what the government of China did in <laughs> Southern Mongolia. So look, he, his original words, he said, look, the Chinese can do whatever they want in, in Southern Mongolia. We cannot even talk about that. And then we can not even mention that. And then that's a crime. If you mention what they did in <laughs> Mongolia, it's a crime in, you know, in, in Southern Mongolia. So he was, uh, uh, then he was under house arrest and then we uh, lost contact with him. So look, this just, he is just a, one of the recent examples, many other, like for example, uh, Mr. Hada, who I mentioned earlier, he himself was a writer, actually. He had a bookstore. Uh, he he uh, he did not have any official job. He just he, was, uh, he he ran his own small bookstore, Mongolian Studies bookstore. The name of the bookstore is. So he uh, he just he was a writer. He wrote a book uh, called uh, "Way Out of Southern Mongolia," and then he talked about you know the political. Uh, issue like uh, yeah, the ethnic problems and all this, and then that book was not even officially published. That and then book was of course after he arrested, everything's confiscated. 
that book was one of his crimes that alleged <laughs> crimes he committed. And then so, uh, so and then uh, again, there, there's another, there was also another writer, um, Mrs. Horchin, who, who is actually also a member of the organization that had, had, uh, um, uh, had uh, organized, uh, had uh, set up, like the, you know, her name is uh, Gobrut Horchin, who she uh, was, uh, uh, she was a writer. She wrote uh, several books, and then she uh, wrote uh, many uh, essays and articles. Uh, of course, so, you know, again, it's it's not not published <laughs> officially. And then she was, um, you know, she was um, arrested many many times, and then she was detained many times, and then later on, um, she got, you know, she had a serious health problem, and then. The, the government, uh, you know, the Chinese um, uh, state security personnel just uh, followed her 24 by 7. And then even at her deathbed, there were a few, uh, you know, the three or four police <laughs> guarding her. So that was, that was the situation of a Mongolian writer. So it's, it's a really... Well, that was that was the past, right? Like like a few years back, and now starting last year, and then now even uh, today, there's nothing, no Mongolian publication that we can talk about because you know everything, all the Mongolian literature publication are pretty much just banned altogether. That's something that I've really struggled with in researching, you know, because in banned books, of course, we 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 collect books from around the world which are have been banned or burned mm -hmm. or censored mm -hmm. and weirdly there's it's there's very little from china because actually the books don't even exist in the first place yeah, exactly yes they're yes. not even they're not conceived You're because right. they, <laughs> because they've successfully created this culture of self-censorship uh -huh. on yes. the part of the authors so there's no point actually there's very little point in uh, you know some southern mongolian you know who love who wants to talk about democracy this there's why why would he do this you know why would he write that book because you're only going to get into trouble there is no possibility that it will be published exactly so, there's, so it's actually kind of a waste of time and it leads to this weird situation where it's it kind of feels like they've won they've successfully implemented like, like this culture of self-censorship and those books don't exist compared with for example we have a hu huge section for the united states of america all right because in the usa the debate is out there it's out in public and everybody's part of the debate and it's a you know it moves back and forth what is okay and what is not okay but at least it's happening and at right. least the books are exist exactly. in order yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in in china and i i can i can definitely believe that especially for southern mongolian writers um there's actually weirdly very little to be censored yeah absolutely there's any sign of if there's any sign of like a new book coming up then then it was like you know before it's officially published but uh this, you know but mongolian situation is a little bit different luckily we have an independent country in the north uh, so some books made the way to <laughs> escape all this to independent country of mongolia and then some you know just uh the passionate you know reader or some some even some writer helped to like translate it into cyrillic 
you know, Mongolian, you know, we are same language. There's no actual language translation, it's just script translation, right? So, and then uh, some of the books were published. In, for example, the the uh, the author that I mentioned, Mr. Lamja Borjikin, Borjikin Lamja, his book was actually published in, in Cyrillic Mongolian in independent country of Mongolia, which nerved the, Chinese, <laughs> nerved the Chinese government even further than, oh, like this guy's book is published in, in Mongolia. And then so it's, that's, that's you know, the, the crime is even just more serious. And so it's... Well, I definitely, that's, that's one that we have to get for the museum. That's a, that's a great yeah, story. I there, like that there, story very much. Yes, we... Uh, can actually provide you with some some books, even copies of some books, and then uh, um, those banned books uh, that uh, is available somehow uh, outside <laughs> outside <laughs> South Mongolia, outside China. Um, but again, it's it's completely impossible to uh, be published in in South Mongolia, at least in the near future. I don't know when. <laughs> in the, uh, yeah, I can yeah. I can imagine. I well, I look forward to. I very much look forward to representing. Uh, southern Mongolia in our museum it's uh, it's a topic which you know has became close to my heart a few years ago and it's it's meant so much to have this conversation with you and to be able to talk about this because it's been such a long time and there's so few people who around the world who understand and the specific challenges which are happening in southern Mongolia and have a, a an in deep, deep insight into it so it's been really nice to talk to you about this Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you too. So uh, yes, I'll I'll my try uh, try my best to just you know find the copies of those books that uh, probably by uh, you know like uh, in in uh, PDF form or some uh, print form uh, uh, whatever is available. Yes, it's your your effort. Your your work is extremely important, especially like for for people like us where there's you know people who. Uh, cannot enjoy the, the you know freedom of speech and freedom of press so it's it's uh, uh, extremely valuable work <laughs> i appreciate that for for people who are listening uh, you can uh, come to ban books uh, soon and uh, hopefully you can see some uh, some material from inner mongolia and appreciate the uh, the traditional script that i was talking about earlier that would be nice thank you thank you for having me If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. You can find out more information about the Bandbooks Museum at bandbooksmuseum.com, where you can find links to our social media sites, including our Patreon page, where you can sign up to our monthly book club. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan, and I'll see you next time.